And today, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to the easiest book in the Bible to find. It's the easiest verse in the Bible to find. It's the very first one, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, and so, since it's so easy to find, I'm going to ask you to do two things at the same time. I'm going to ask you to flip to your Bibles, Genesis 1, verse 1. At the same time, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we read this verse together out loud. And so, why don't you stand to your feet? And if you don't have it in front of you, you can read it off the screen. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's such a short verse, and so this is just going to take a second. Let's read this out loud in a big, loud voice. One, two, three, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Turn to your neighbor and say, you read that short verse well. Today we're doing a series here at Thrive. It's called Overcome My Unbelief. And this series is all about questions. Questions that people have about the Christian faith. Maybe even objections or criticisms that people have about the Christian faith. And we've been addressing each one one by one. Today is episode two of that series where we're talking about a very important topic, which is how do I know that God exists? And so with that topic in mind, would you turn your neighbors on your right and your left in front of you, behind you, give them a high five and say, how do I know? How do I know? Please have your seats. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know that God exists? You know, beyond just personal experience, when people share their stories of how they feel they've experienced God, which can be a bit subjective and some people think, uh, you know, inter- like open to interpretation, what evidence, what objective evidence is out there for the existence of God? We're going to talk about that today. See, this is a pretty crucial question because if we don't have confidence that God exists, why bother coming to church? Why bother doing anything at all? Last week, we began this series called Overcome My Unbelief uh, by looking at the relationship between Christian faith and science. And I submitted to you that Christian faith and science, they're not enemies, they're not mutually exclusive, they're not either or, but they actually go hand in hand. And as important as science is in our pursuit of knowledge and truth, science was never meant to answer every single question out there. It wasn't designed to answer all types of matters of truth. That's because there's certain limitations to science. Science is all about repetition. It's all about doing repeatable experiments and getting results that you can observe with your five senses. But how do you and I put God, who exists outside of time and space, how do we put God in a scientific test tube? You can't. And so the fact is this, is that science is incredibly helpful, but science cannot conclusively prove or disprove the existence of God. But what science can do is science can help us discover evidence that points to the existence of God. And as we look today at some of these clues, I want you to take a careful look and ask yourself this question. As you're looking at the evidence, what is the best explanation for the evidence that we're going to look at today. You're almost like a jury looking at a murder trial. You're looking at all these clues. And you can't go back and repeat the past. And so what you have to do is you have to look at the evidence that's available in front of you and ask yourself, what's the best explanation for this? You know, when I was 19 years old, I went through a crisis in what I believed. Is that I grew up in a Christian home or a, church or, or, or a family that went to church. And, and it was when I was 19 years old, I started to question everything in a really serious way, where I was not sure if God existed anymore. I doubted the existence of God. I didn't believe that God existed. I thought, you know, God is just a figment of people's imagination. Uh, and it, went, it, it caused me to go on a search for what I thought was the truth. And so I started to look at different arguments for and against the existence of God, to look at different evidence apparently for or against the existence of God. And this search led me to some of the clues we're going to be talking about today. And, you know, as with anything... As you look at the evidence today, whether you choose to believe one thing or another will always require 
a measure of faith. If you choose to be a Christian and say, I believe there's a God, that takes a measure of faith. If you decide to be an atheist and say, I do not believe there's a God, guess what? That requires faith. If you decide to be an agnostic and say, I cannot know if there's a God, then that decision also requires faith. Regardless of where you're at today, if you are here just exploring faith issues, you don't consider yourself a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. If you're here just kind of with questions, so glad that you're here. Maybe you've been a Christian for a really long time, but you've got these questions nagging you, or you've got friends who are asking these questions, you don't know how to answer them. So glad that you're here. We hope you find today's message and this whole series called Overcome My Unbelief very, very helpful. The fact is this. We're going to look at some clues that I believe point to the existence of God. And I believe that when you honestly consider these clues, you're going to find that it is more reasonable to believe and conclude that God exists than to conclude that God does not exist. And so let's start with these clues. Are you guys ready to look at some clues this morning? Yeah? Do you have a proactive church in this place this morning? Could you shout to God just to let me know that you're, you're awake in this place this morning? A proactive church is not afraid to take good notes and I hope you do so as we get into Overcome My Unbelief Episode 2, looking at clues that point to the existence of God. Clue number one. God is the best explanation for why the universe came into being. See, we're talking first about how God is the best explanation for why the universe began in the first place. See, it's about cause and effect. It's something that my son, who's only 18 months, year, uh, 18 months old, his name is Caleb, he's just starting to learn about cause and effect. When I'm holding him in my arms and we'll go to uh, a light switch and he'll reach out his hand and he'll turn on the light switch, he'll see, okay, he'll, he'll, he'll turn it on, and he'll see that when he turns on the switch, cause, the lights turn on, effect. Or when he grabs the remote control for a TV and he presses that button, cause, the TV turns on, effect. Or when he's holding something heavy in his hand and he drops it on his dad's foot, um, you know, he's holding it and he drops it, that's the cause, his dad's screaming, that's the effect. Right? And so cause and effect is something that even babies can learn. And see, this is important because I'm here to tell you something today. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Think, for example, about your own existence. What caused your existence? What caused you to be on this earth? Did you just appear out of nowhere? Did you just kind of all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, you're just, bam, voila, I'm here. No, someone caused you. In fact, most likely, two people caused you. It's your parents. And so for those of you who are January babies, who just celebrated your birthday last month, happy birthday to you, lots of you in this place. And the fact is this, is that nine months before your birthday, two people caused you. Your parents made beautiful music together, and you were the result of that beautiful music. That's just how you were caused. And see, is the fact is that everything that begins to exist has a cause. That goes for you and me. That goes for everything you observe in our known world. That goes for the universe. Now, some people have always believed that the universe had a beginning. And one of the basis for believing it was the second law of thermodynamics, which says that the universe has only a finite amount of energy in it. And so if it's got only a finite, limited amount of energy, then it cannot have existed always for eternity, never any beginning, never any end. There must have been a time when it began, and there will be a time when it ends. And so that was a basis for some people believing that, you know what, the, the universe had a beginning. There are others still who believe that, you know, the universe has always been around. It's eternal. There's no beginning to it. There's no end to it. But in 1929, the astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered something that changed the way that people look at the universe. He discovered that galaxies in our universe are actually getting further and further 
and further apart, is that the universe was getting less and less dense. In other words, like a balloon that you blow up, the universe was expanding, like a loaf of bread in an oven or a marshmallow in a microwave. It's just expanding, and it continues to expand to this day. And in fact, if you had somehow the ability to stand outside of space and time and use your iPhone to record the expansion of the universe, you would see something, which is you see the universe getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And if you were to somehow replay that video backwards, the further back in time you go, the universe is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until there's a point when there was just one single point and right before that, nothing. In other words, the universe, Edwin Hubble discovered, has a beginning. And see, what could have caused the universe to come into, begin, in, in, into being, to begin in the first place? See, most scientists, they believe today that approximately 13.8 billion years ago, the universe began in an extremely hot and dense state, and then all of a sudden, it rapidly expanded. This has become known as the Big Bang. And as a result of the Big Bang, now we have space, we've got galaxies, we've got planets, we've got the sun, we've got the earth, we've got everything that makes up this universe. But the question is this, if the Big Bang caused the universe, what caused the Big Bang? See, one theory is, all oh, it, it just happened. Maybe it just caused itself. But how could something cause itself to exist? That doesn't happen. How, how could it just happen? How could nothing create something? It's kind of like uh, you know, the movie Sound of Music. You guys know the, the movie Sound of Music? It's one of my favorite movies, actually. You've got Julie Andrews as Fraulein Maria, uh, and she's taking care of these kids, but she's also falling in love with her father, who, uh, whose name is Captain Von Trapp. And do you know that, you know that scene where they're, the, Captain Von Trapp and Maria, they're, they're together under the night sky, and, and she starts to sing the song as they're kind of holding each other in their arms, going, uh, perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked childhood, I must have done something good. You know that song? And then later on, she says this in the song. He goes, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. See, what is that saying? Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. And, and, and I'm using that to let you know that nothing comes from nothing. You can't get something out of nothing. And so it doesn't make sense just to say, oh, the Big Bang, it, it just happened. Because you can't get something out of nothing. See, something must have caused the Big Bang. Whatever caused the Big Bang must have had incredible power and must have existed outside of time and space. Now, some people say, well, maybe it's aliens. Maybe it's aliens that caused it. Well, then that begs the question, well, what caused the aliens? Some people say, well, maybe the universe isn't just expanding. Maybe uh, it's, just, uh, it's expanding now, but it'll contract later and it'll expand again. It's kind of doing this weird sort of, like, I I'm getting uh, you know, bigger, then I'm getting smaller again, getting bigger, but there's no evidence for that. See, the most reasonable explanation for something coming from nothing when it comes to the Big Bang is that there is a God, there's a God who exists outside of time and space who has incredible power who caused the Big Bang. And that through the Big Bang, God caused the universe. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 with me. Read it with me in a big, loud voice. 1, 2, 3, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 3. What does it say? It says, By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what? 
was visible. See, it's the idea that God, if there's anyone who can do it, it is God who stands outside of time and space, who has himself no beginning or end, who started it all when he caused the Big Bang to cause the universe. He made something out of nothing because God can. And see, in 1992, there was a satellite called the Cosmic Background Explorer, which came back with these stunning images of the cosmic microwave background radiation of the universe. And these images basically confirmed the Big Bang. George Smoot, who headed that satellite team and who would later win a Nobel Prize in physics for his work, he commented that when he saw these images of the evidence for the Big Bang, he said it was like looking at God. Dr. Robert Jastrow, who's the professor of astronomy at Columbia University, he's also the director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, he looked at the evidence for the universe's expansion and how it had this beginning. And, and he said, he wrote this, he said, now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. See, what's that idea? It's that, in other words, science has only recently discovered what theologians and the Bible have been talking about for centuries, which is that in the beginning, God created the universe. See, God is the best explanation for why the universe began to exist. If you say, oh, it just happened, that doesn't make any sense. You have to have an explanation for the evidence. And you say nothing caused it? No. The best explanation is that God was the one who put this universe into existence in the first place. Now, you might say, well, if God caused the universe, then what caused God? No one. God never had a beginning. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He's the one who doesn't have a cause. He's the ultimate uncaused cause. He's the explanation who doesn't need any further explanation. That's clue number one. God is the best explanation for why this universe began in the first place. Clue number two. God is the best explanation for why the earth can sustain life. See, when you look at how much order there is in the universe and what makes life possible on our planet, the most reasonable explanation, I believe, is that something or someone intentionally designed it to be that way. See, for example, we talked about the Big Bang just now. If the Big Bang was this massive explosion of matter, where you've got matter just kind of just going in every possible direction, just scattering randomly all across space, what you'd expect is that it would just be an explosion. No order to it at all. You'd expect absolute chaos. For example, say I had this box of puzzle pieces, and there's like, say, like 10,000 or a million puzzle pieces in my hand. And in my other hand, I've got a grenade. And I decide to be especially violent for some reason today. And I decide I'm going to blow up this box of puzzle pieces with my grenade. And so I set it. I, 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 I ignite it. What would you expect would happen with all those puzzle pieces? You would expect just absolute chaos. Broken puzzle pieces randomly strewn everywhere with no rhyme, no reason, no order at all. But you know what? That's not what happened with the Big Bang. See, the Big Bang is almost like you take this box of puzzle pieces, you take a grenade, and what you get is a perfect picture of that puzzle. Every piece fitted together perfectly. It's amazing. How could something like that happen? See, this massive explosion called the Big Bang didn't create 
chaos. Instead, we have this universe that is so full of beauty, full of order. We have a planet that sustains life. You've got solar systems. You've got you know, planets you know, orbiting around the sun. You've got a planet Earth that's filled with beauty, filled with order, filled with life. And see, in fact, Francis Collins, he's a geneticist. We looked at him a bit last week. He says this. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew something, if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. See, what is he saying? Is that it was highly unlikely if any value, any constant, you know, the gravitational constant, other constants, the strong, weak nuclear force, if they were off by even a little bit, then there was no way we could have a universe like we have today. Alan Rex Sandage, he says this, he's one of the most famous astrophysicists of our time. He says, I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle. God, to me, is the explanation for the miracle of existence. Let's look at what Stephen Hawking wrote. Stephen Hawking, of course, a very famous uh, physicist uh, who passed on just a couple years ago. He writes this. He says, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Then he goes on to write, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious Implications. So Stephen Hawking himself, he says, you know what? There's something about the way that the universe is created by the Big Bang that are so highly unlikely, there must be religious implications. Now, did Stephen Hawking later on become a believer? Actually, probably not. Evidence says probably not, but I don't think it's because of the clues we're talking about today. I think it's about something else that I'll talk about later on. But see, specifically about planet Earth, when you take a closer look at the way our planet works, you're going to be amazed at how many factors need to be perfectly arranged and in place in order for life to be possible on this planet, such that if you change them only slightly, life would not be possible here on this Earth. Everything from, for example, the distance from the Earth to the sun that keeps our planet from either completely burning up or completely freezing over or the perfect distance between the moon and the earth that regulates our tides, or the electromagnetic force that binds protons and electrons, the density of our air, the special properties of oxygen that make it just perfect for us to breathe, the speed of our planet, just that it's just right so that we don't fly off into outer space, our our proximity to a planet like Jupiter, where because of its size, it acts like this gravitational shield so that we're not hit by comets all the time. It's, It's If any of these things was just a fraction greater or less, the scientists say life would not have been possible on this earth. That's why Paul Davies, another astrophysicist, he says, there is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. In other words, the impression that someone put it together and designed it all, not randomly, but designed it thoughtfully, is overwhelming. And then William D. Phillips, another physicist and Nobel Prize winner, he says this, he says, exceptional fine-tuning of the conditions of the universe, the development of life, suggests that an intelligent creator is responsible. So all these different scientists over and over saying, based on the evidence, it's pretty clear that it was a designer who made this happen. Now, some people say, well, maybe it was an accident. Maybe it just happened. 
Maybe this is by chance. How likely is it that all of this happened by chance? Well, Professor Roger Penrose, he's a famous British mathematician, and he actually tried to calculate the probability that a life-sustaining universe like the one we have would come together by chance. And so he calculated that probability, and this is the number he came up with. He said that the probability that a life-sustaining universe would happen by chance is 1 in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. 1 in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. By comparison, if you want to know how huge that number is, the number of atoms in the universe, subatomic particles in the universe, is about 10 to the power of 80. That's 1 followed by 80 zeros. This number, 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123, it's hard to even fathom what number that is. In fact, if I had to write it out, it'd be kind of like this, but it doesn't even come close. It's like 0.000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000
See, what do I mean by moral obligation? See, what I mean is that all of us, we have a sense of right and wrong. All of us deep down have this gut feeling of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Some people call it a conscience. Is that we have a sense of moral obligation such that you know, when we're inclined to do something wrong, that sense of moral obligation t- causes us to take a step back. Oh, no, maybe I shouldn't do that. Or when we actually do something wrong, that sense of moral obligation causes us to feel bad and go, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. Or when we want to help someone out or we pass by someone in distress, there's that sense of moral obligation going, oh man, should I help that person? There's a sense of moral obligation that we have. In fact, Oxford University, they they did the largest cross-cultural study in history when they studied 60 different cultures around the world. And they found, these anthropologists, they found that these 60 different cultures around the world tend to have very similar sets of moral values. And is that no matter what country or what part of the world they are, they all tend to revolve around six or seven core values. One was loving your family. None was being a team player, being unselfish, being brave, respecting other people's property rights and so forth. And the whole goal of that study or the, the conclusion of that study is that, you know what, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what culture you grow up in around the world, anthropologists are very impressed by how, generally speaking, human beings across the world will tend to have the same general sense of moral obligation. Now, where does that come from? Where does that, why do we as human beings have such a strong sense of moral obligation? See, when you look at the rest of nature, you don't really see that, do you? See, when a, when a lion hunts down a gazelle in Africa, and just, and just destroys that the gazelle with its teeth, we don't call that murder. We call that National Geographic, right? You know, when, a, when a shark forcibly copulates with another shark, we don't call that rape. We call that the wonders of nature. Right? We, but, but if we do that, if, if human beings did that, that's murder. If human beings did that, that's rape. You know, I, growing up as a kid and later as a teenager, um, in our home we had three dogs. We started with two. Their names were Casey and Sunshine. And they were actually brother and sister. But perhaps not knowing any better, uh, Casey and Sunshine decided to have babies together. And uh, we gave away most of the babies, except we kept one. His name is Kokomo. Uh, after the Beach Boys song, Kokomo, you know that song? Again, okay, gonna take you down to Kokomo. You get there fast and then we'll take it slow. That's where we want to go. Way down to Kokomo. You know Kokomo? Okay, so, all right. So his name is Kokomo. And, and Kokomo was blind. He was blind in both eyes. And this is the thing, is that I remember I was responsible for feeding these dogs. And so I would take a plate of food out to the garage where the dogs were. And at first, I didn't know any better. I'd have this plate of food, and I'd go, okay, everyone, it's time to eat now. I'd put the plate down on the floor, and i just watch the dogs come to eat. And so Casey and Sunshine, they both really hurry, they, they hurry up. Kokomo is somewhere in the corner somewhere, and he smells the food. He hears my voice, but he keeps bumping into walls because he can't see. And he's, he's like, and, and like, I, I'm right here, like, Kokomo, come here. And he's like, and he walks right past me, and he bumps into another wall. And finally, when he gets to the food, you know, Casey and Sunshine, his parents, start to bite him and attack him and say, get away, and, and, and end up basically eating all the food so there's nothing left for Kokomo. And, um, and, and after, so after that, after a while, I was like, okay, I, I know better now. So what I would do is after that, after a while, I would, I would bring two plates and go, okay, Casey and Sunshine, here you go. They both come. And I'd grab the other plate. I'd put it in another corner. I'd go, hey, Kokomo, this one's for you and he'd eat the food that way. And why do I mention that? It's because if Casey, Sunshine, and Kokomo were human beings, 
then Casey and Sunshine will be seen as committing child abuse. Casey and Sunshine will be seen as committing incest. But because they are not human beings, we don't hold them to that kind of standard. Why is it that human beings, we hold ourselves and other people to a moral standard of moral obligation? Why? Once Charles Darwin was asked this question, which is how, was, how, how are human beings different from all other animals? And he had a reply that I thought was really interesting. He said, human beings are the only animals that blush. Hmm. Blush. And why is that? He, I, I believe what he was talking about was that human beings are the, only, like, are, are the only ones who seem to have a really strong sense of moral obligation. I never saw Casey or Sunshine go, oh, maybe I shouldn't have bit my, my own son. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have you know, taken all the food by myself. They, they don't blush. But we, we have this sense of moral obligation. And see, where does that come from? If you were to ask you know, worldview evolutionists, that means people who don't just believe in evolution as a scientific theory, but they believe that it's their worldview, it's the way they look at life. A guy like, for example, Richard Dawkins, he will say that your sense of moral obligation is actually not real. Why is that? It's because our instincts, our cognitive faculties, the way that we reason and come up with our beliefs are all hardwired for one thing and one thing only. What is, what is that? It's survival. It's self-preservation. That's what we are all about. And so when we form beliefs about right or wrong or God, it's not because those beliefs are really true. It's simply because it helps us to survive. It helps us to persevere and to preserve ourselves. It's all about self-preservation. And see, I've got a couple problems with that way of thinking. The first is this, is that when you look at the moral values that we admire the most in our world and our society, you know, when a person risks their life for someone else, when someone helps a stranger that they don't know, when you love your enemy, when you do good and you give sacrificially, even when it doesn't benefit you personally, doesn't that run counter to the drive for self-preservation? Doesn't that run counter to the idea that all I want to do is just, you know, dominate my competitors and pass on my genes to the next generation? How does, if, 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 if someone gives their life for someone else, how is that self-preservation? And so I don't know if that's a good explanation for why we have moral values. There, there's another problem with you know, evolutionary theory as a worldview that explains why we have moral values. Is that, if, is that according to evolutionists, worldview evolutionists, they'll say, yeah, the reason why we have these beliefs is not because they're true. It's because we're just hard bent on survival. We're just so set on passing our genes to the next generation. That's all that it's about. And so what you believe about anything is actually just about survival. It's not because it's actually true. If that's the case, why should we trust our cognitive faculties, our reasoning, and our beliefs about anything at all, including evolution? Why? See, if evolution as a worldview is true, then what that means is that you can't really trust your beliefs about anything, including evolutionary theory. It's a self-defeating proposition. You're cutting the very branch you're trying to sit on. You can't invoke the power of reason while at the same time trying to discount it. That's a very important, important point about evolutionary theory that you've got to realize. And you might need to go back and, and check out this message again because the fact is that, is that, that those are two problems that come with believing in evolution as a worldview. 
worldview, not just a scientific theory, but as a worldview, is that you can't even trust what you believe anymore. In fact, Charles Darwin, the man who came up with the, the theory of evolution, he confessed that this was a problem for him too. In a private letter that he wrote to a friend, Darwin expressed his doubt this way. He wrote this, he said, within me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. What's he saying? He's saying, if I'm just the product of animals, and I'm just, you know, all bent on survival and self-preservation and passing my genes on to the next generation, I'm not really concerned about truth. And so even the things I think are true, I don't really believe because it's true, because it's to, to, to survive, then what can I trust to be really true about anything? It became known as Darwin's doubt. And, and see, the fact is this. I don't believe evolution provides us with a good explanation for why we have this strong sense of moral obligation. The fact is, without God, what you believe about right and wrong becomes just what you believe. It's maybe what you were taught in your family or how your culture is and the, the, you know, the place you were brought up in, your schooling, you know, your preferences, but not because anything's really right or wrong. If there's no God... As, as Fyodor Dostoevsky, one of the no, novelists in, from Russia, writes, if there is no God, all things are lawful. In other words, without God, there isn't any real moral obligation out there. Child abuse is not really wrong. It's just something we don't really like because it hurts our feelings. Or, you know, murder is not really wrong. It's just a cultural idea that some people think is wrong, but it's not really that wrong. It's not really wrong in itself. No, none, but actually, you know what? The fact is this. None of us really lives that way. None of us actually really believes that. We believe child abuse is wrong because child abuse is wrong, right? We believe rape is wrong because rape is wrong. We believe genocide is wrong because genocide is just simply wrong. It's not because of just culture. It means that regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of how you feel, it's always wrong no matter what. If you believe that, say amen. And so what's the better explanation for why we have a sense of moral obligation, a sense of right or wrong? I'm going to put it to you today that the best explanation for why we believe there's such thing as absolute right and absolute wrong is because there really is an absolute standard for right and wrong. And that absolute standard is God. That absolute standard is God. Is that God is righteousness personified. He is loyalty personified. He is the essence of what is good. He is the standard. He doesn't just set the standard. He is the standard. And since we as human beings are made in God's image, we have his standard imprinted on the inside of us and we can't really get away from it no matter how hard we try. That's why Romans 2, 14 to 15 puts it this way. It says, read it with me today. What does it say? It says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. What's Paul saying in Romans 2? He's saying that about Gentiles, that's you and me, that's people who didn't grow up as, you know, in Jewish families, is that we as Gentiles, that even though you may have never opened the Bible before and read God's word, read scripture, the fact is that in our hearts, each one of us already has a law. 
Every one of us, we already have, as if written on our hearts, this idea of what's right and wrong. It's like, almost like before we ever opened any scripture, before anyone ever even taught us, we already have the sense of what is right and wrong. It's our conscience. And it's as if, and it's this idea that where did it come from? Where did the sense of moral obligation come from? It didn't come from evolution. It didn't come just because of our culture. It comes because we're made in the image of God is that God made us and imprinted himself, his standard on us, so that we could have a sense of how to live life. It's this idea that the law just didn't appear, but it came from somewhere. See, as C.S. Lewis, who once was an atheist, who became one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith in the 20th century, he once said this. He said, before, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. And see, here's the thing. What is he saying? He's saying the reason why we even have this idea, oh, that's wrong, or oh, that, that's, that's just wrong, that's not good, that's, is because we have built into us this idea of what is perfect and what is good. And I'm, I'm, here to, I'm, put, I'm gonna put it to you today, that if you believe there's such thing as something that's really right and there's something that's really wrong, that is a clue that God exists and that he's closer to you than you think. It's a clue that God has written his law already on your heart. See, for 50 years, from 1950 to the turn of the century, there's a man by the name of Antony Flew who was the face of atheism. In fact, he was a spokesperson for atheism for half a century. His paper called Theology and Falsification, which argued that God did not exist, was the most widely published philosophical paper of our past century. And, our, our, like, and, and Anthony Flew, he, he influenced so many philosophers after him, generations of philosophy students and professors after him, to, and influencing them to, to believe that there is no God. And he traveled around the world arguing for that belief. But in the early, the early 2000s, Anthony Flew shocked the world when he announced that he'd changed his position from being an atheist who doesn't believe there is a God to a theist who believes there is a God. And uh, in fact, he came up with uh, a book that he calls There is a God. And he, 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 he outlines his journey from being an atheist to being a theist. He says it wasn't any sort of spiritual experience that he had. It was just, he started to look at the evidence again. And, you know, Anthony Flew, he describes some of the evidence that he started to reconsider again. The fact that the universe had a beginning. The fact that, you know, the, the, the universe, and especially the earth, is so fine-tuned for life in such an impossible way. Uh, you know, the, the fact that the natural world is governed by such rational, orderly laws. And he wondered, you know, why does this universe even bother to exist? Could God be the answer to that? You know, the fact that when you look at our own DNA or the DNA of any living organism, it's so complex how even a single cell amoeba has enough structured and meaningful data inside one single cell to fill 30 volumes of encyclopedias. Anthony started to wonder, you know, is this, uh, you know, as geneticist Francis Collins would put it, is this the language of God? Or as Stephen Meyer, another geneticist put it, is this God's signature in the cell? And after considering all this evidence again, he realized he's, he, he had to suspend his bias and look at the evidence again, and he came to the conclusion that, you know what? It's actually more reasonable for me to believe now that God exists than that God doesn't exist. It actually wasn't a super emotional experience for him. It was simply just looking at the evidence again. And in fact, he wrote this. He says, I must say again that the journey to my discovery of the divine has thus far been a pilgrimage of reason. I have followed the argument where it has led me, 
and has led me to accept the existence of a self-existent, immutable, that means doesn't change, immaterial, that means you can't see him, omnipotent, that's all-powerful, and omniscient being. And, you know, when this book came out, atheists around the world were shocked. And they did everything they could to try to attack this book and say, oh, he's so old, he couldn't have read it, or he couldn't have written it. He's so, but all he has to do is just go and, and listen, to some of his, listen to some of his interviews. Because he says exactly the same things. He say, it's not just, not just the books. It's, it's him going on different TV shows and going, this is why I'm a theist now. You know, Anthony Flew, he, he died a few years ago. But not without shocking the philosophical world into realizing that actually it's possible for an atheist to become a theist. Romans 1.20 says it this way. Read it with me in a big loud voice. He says, for since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Today we've been looking at three clues that I believe strongly point to the existence of God. Now, does it take faith to believe based on this that there is a God? Yes, it does. Does it take faith to say, you know what, after looking at this, I still don't believe there's a God? Yeah, that takes faith as well. And I want to tell you today is that you can either be like Arthur Flew who would suspend his bias even for a moment and say, okay, looking at this evidence, I have to conclude that this is really strong evidence to believe that there is a God who exists, that it is reasonable to believe that God exists. Or you can be like others who look at the evidence and they go, oh, there must be another explanation. Please, let's not go to God right now. Let's not talk about God right now. Let's find another explanation. I believe actually that's what happened with Stephen Hawking before he died. Is that, you know, when, when Stephen Hawking, who's known as one of the most, the brightest scientists who ever lived, you know, he, he'd be writing in his books about, oh, this seems like God. This implies God. There's religious implications. But then later on, he'd be like, oh, no, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe in God. I believe what happened with him was not so much a lack of evidence. I think what was happening for him was that he was so set on trying to find a way to explain life without God. He wanted to find his theory of everything, but he never found it. It didn't, ever work. It didn't actually work. It didn't work in practicality. It's because he was so still looking for a way to live and explain life without having to acknowledge God. And you have the same choice to make today. Am I going to, based on the evidence, believe there is a God and live my life accordingly? Or am I going to look at the evidence and still find a way to live my life without him? That's a choice that only you can make. I want to encourage you to take that step of faith and believe that the most reasonable conclusion you can make based on the clues we've talked about today is to say there is a God. This God exists. He's the best explanation for why this universe came to being. He's the best explanation for why this planet sustains life. He's the best explanation for why deep down in me, I have the sense of what's right and what's wrong. It's because of God. It's because of God. I'm going to end with just one last statement, but we're not going to unpack it today. This is something we're going to be focusing on in the coming weeks in our series called Overcoming My Unbelief. But... I want to just say this. God didn't just make the universe and leave it alone. He didn't just create life and leave it alone. He didn't even just write his law in our hearts and then leave it alone. What God did was he provided a way that we could know him personally. It was through someone called Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, we can know God. We'll be looking at that in weeks to come. But know this, that you're here and you can really relate to this idea of moral obligation. You feel that all the time. You live in a world of oughts and shoulds. You're always saying, oh, I should do this. I shouldn't do that. Oh, why did I not do that? Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm here to let you know. Jesus came so that we could have a relationship with God. 
Jesus came because he knew that we have our, God's law written in our hearts, but we couldn't fulfill it. And so many of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we live with a bit of guilt or maybe a lot of it, knowing that we can't fulfill God's standards. I can't fulfill my standards, let alone God's standards. But because God loves us, he sent Jesus Christ for us to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven of all the ways that we've broken his laws. And not only did he die on the cross for our sins, but he rose again from the grave to show that neither death nor sin have any hold over him. So that when you place your trust in Jesus, you have a new beginning. When you place your trust in Jesus, you can know God personally. When you place your trust in Jesus, you have not just a religion or rules to follow or a law to obey, but you have a God you can know personally. If you believe that, give God a big, big hand here in this place together right now. I'm going to ask our band to lead us in a song. I invite all of you to stand. Let's respond to God after that.